Welcome to 1001 Radio Crime Solvers Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we want 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to be your favorite place to go to enjoy a great mix of vintage detective shows from the golden age of radio. The scripts were great, the action was hot, and even the old commercials are enjoyable. And now, another episode of 1001 Radio Crime Solvers is ready to go. Enjoy! Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison of the grave. The trail started in Montana with a bum with two names rushing away from his lady love, and led fast into L.A., past a southerner from Canada, a worried wool dealer, and a chorus girl with a forty-five. When it finally stopped at murder in the park, the tramp was still in a hurry. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Bum's Rush. You know, there comes a time in everyone's life when a relative wants a favor. But this was a particularly nice relative. (laughs) In fact, a great old gal. She'd written my name and address in the center and her name, Jessie Gavins, Eagles Rock, Montana, in the upper left corner of the envelope. The stamp totaled away a mail special and the letter inside started off like one of those I was wrong, you've got to find them for me, you've got to type. But it didn't wind up that way. Clipped to the letter was a $100 check and under that, a not-too-good snapshot of a bald man holding a rake who wouldn't have been helped any by better photography. Ten minutes later, at exactly 8 p.m., my long-distance call was put through, and the voice that belonged to Aunt Jessie was snapping at me from Eagles Rock, Montana, like the end of a whip. Certainly I wrote it. How many Jessie Gamses do you think there are in Eagles Rock? Philip, I want you to find Jonathan Miter and see if he's all right. Yeah, you said that in your letter. Jonathan Miter is my fiancé. Aunt Jessie. Oh, I know what you're thinking, <laughs> young man, but I'm 51 and he's 55, and there's nothing wrong with the September song of the harmonies close enough. Yeah, I hope my harmony's that good when I'm 55. <laughs> Why are you worried, honey? Because he left here last week on some kind of a big deal. It's a secret. That's all he'd tell me, and I haven't heard a word from him since. I see. Well, tell me, what sort of a deal would it be? I mean, what business? Uh, he's not in any business. Oh. What was his work before he retired? Well, he's not exactly retired either. He's not exactly... Look, Aunt Jessie, I'm getting at this. What does he do, or what did he used to do for a living? Uh... Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Look, you didn't happen to give that fine, honest, proud man a wad of money to finance this big deal of his, did you? Oh, no. Well, certainly. then don't, because I'll be frank. Sounds to me like a broken-down con man warming up a new routine. Then I'll gladly pay to find that out, Philip. But I think you're wrong. Jonathan told me that he had to prove himself by making some money of his own before he'd marry me. <laughs> As if I didn't have enough to take care of two people already. <laughs> okay, Jesse, it's a little off-center, but I'll buy it. Uh, How'd you get that? Uh, from checking through every single thing of his I could lay my hands on. It was on the back of an envelope. Of course, it may not mean nothing. You're so right, Jesse. Please, now, don't joke with me, Philip. <laughs> Jonathan was so serious and in such a hurry, and there was a funny, brave glint in his eye when he left. Do your best. A brave glint. Oh, no. Okay, Jesse, no jokes. Goodbye, darling. a little sorry for my Aunt Jessie Gavins because the concept of a knight of the road rushing off on a secret quest to prove himself worthy of marriage held up like a celluloid shovel. And I got no help when I pulled to a stop in front of 764 Hope Street. It was a cramped combination warehouse and office of corrugated iron and glass brick, respectively, 
with a shy red and black sign reading Hirsch Woolens over a door that looked like, well, it looked like it handled about as much business recently as a repair shop for spinning wheels. It was half open, however, so I went in just in time to catch the last round of what must have been a healthy spat going on behind a frosted glass door marked private. Well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Eldon Hirsch. Keep your eyes more on wool and less on nylon and you'll be better off. All right, all right. Heaven's sake, Martha, this is no time to quibble. We've got more important things to do. Unless, of course, you want to keep that chorus job at the plumes forever. Well? Okay. You just watch your step. Goodbye, Eldon. Stand aside, stupid. This is a hallway, not an art gallery. Yeah, there's a petty girl if ever I've seen one. Well, what do you want? Hmm? Oh, uh, uh, Mr. Hirsch. Yes? Yeah, well, I'm Ned Johnson. I'm looking for a job. What kind? Oh, salesman. Uh, wool's my line. I see. And how long have you been waiting out here? Oh, I just stepped in. Come inside. Thanks. Sit down. Now, what is your specialty? Woolens, worsteds, or felt? Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I've handled them all. I, I... We confine ourselves largely to a very high-grade merino woolen, Mr. Uh... Johnson, Ned Johnson. I've worked with Marino. Well, what about the others? Lester, perhaps? Lincoln? Oh, sure. Lester, Lincoln, is, is, certainly. I, I find it all a fascinating business. So do I. A very romantic background. Yeah. By the way, what do you think of Lanatel as against Marino? Lanatel? Well, not good. Not No, you see, I've watched the Lanatels and the Reigns right through shearing and on up to weaving. It just doesn't compare with... Uh, what's the matter? What are you really after? I slipped, huh? You fell on your face. <laughs> Lanatel is synthetic wool made from milk. Now, who are you? Okay, okay. I'm from the Sequoia Credit Association. We're investigating you. Just a periodic routine thing. It's strictly confidential. Get out, I... Get out of here and stay out if I ever catch all you. All right, take it easy. I was clumsy, that's all. Don't start a riot about Don't it. Don't you pry into my apartment. That's quite a temper you got there. Better watch it, Hirsch. It'll get you in trouble so long. <laughs> exactly been wool gathering with Hirsch and company, but I hadn't exactly made strides on the connection between a bum in a hurry and 764 Hope Street either. However, I couldn't help wondering what Hirsch had meant when I'd overheard him speak to the girl in the office about more important things to do. So when he slammed the door on my shoulder blades, I went around to the alley for a peek in his warehouse. But I skipped that when a man stepped into view wearing the identical face I had in my pocket on a snapshot. It was Jonathan Midas. He'd swapped the rig for a silver-tipped cane and patches for 14-carat class from Spats to a Hamburg, which might well have covered a bald head. But it was the same man, no doubt about it. So I decided to play this one strictly three cushions with the reverse English. Hey! Huh? Hey, there, you! Oh, were you addressing me, sir? Yeah. Don't I know you? Oh, sure I do. Point east, huh? Uh, you're mistaken, my man. I haven't been east in 30 years. Oh, come on, friend. I'd know you anyway. You're good old Jonathan Miter. Uh, sir... I am Ross J. Crowley of Canada, and I have never had the dubious pleasure of your acquaintanceship until this very moment. Ross J. Crowley of Canada, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay, Mighty, that's the way you want it. What are you doing around the wool business? Setting it up for a fleecing or just pulling it over somebody's eyes? My good man, you, you've obviously confused me with someone else. Now, pack off, like a nice fellow. I'm in a hurry. Now, wait a minute, Pop, wait a minute. Let's get this straight first. Your name's not Crowley. Why are you using it? My God, please, sir, you're trying my patience. Stand aside. Come on, let's have it. Oh, very well, if you insist. Here it is, man. What the... Hey, hey, come back here, you old goat. Why don't you look out? Why, you awkward roughneck. Why don't you look where you go? I was, but I, I couldn't get around all three of you. Three? What do you mean, You three? and your two big feet. If you can't keep those gunboats out of people's way by yourself, hire a pilot. And you... Oh, by now, my boy's so far ahead, I couldn't catch him if he stopped for lunch. Thanks to you. Goodbye. <laughs> as far as the corner anyway, but I'd been right the first time. Jonathan Mida, alias Ross J. Crowley of Canada, was long gone, and I had no idea where. This left me with one slim, lovely lead, a lady named Marsha. If I'd eavesdropped correctly, she would shortly be making with her legs in the chorus of the Plume Theater restaurant. It was 7.30 when I entered the platinum-plated tourist trap on Hollywood Boulevard that featured small portions of bad food under glass and large helpings of good skin under lights. Cost me ten bucks and a fast ad lib backstage, but it would have been worse out front, so when the chorus high kicked its way out into the wings, I nailed Marsha. She went by. She narrowed a half a pound of mascara at me and let a footlight smile drop, which left very little else. Yeah, my name's Marsha. What do you want? Make it snappy. I gotta change. Change what? Your hairdo? Mm. This won't take a minute, baby. All I want to know is where Jonathan Mida can be found. 
How should I know? I never heard of him. You're stalling on your own time, baby. I got all night. Not to you, Jack. Blow. Come back here. This is important. Now, listen, you. I don't know anybody called Jonathan... What's his name? And put one more fingerprint on my arm and you'll get bounced out of here on your head. You know, there's just a chance you could be on the level? Look, the guy wants about 55 and spats with a Hamburg over what is no doubt a bald dome. Carries a black cane with a silver tip and for some reason answers the name of Crowley. Crowley? Yeah, that's it. Ross J. Getting warmer, huh, kid? And don't bother telling me you never heard of him. So I've heard of him. So what? He's a good pal of mine. Met him a couple of nights ago. He's quite a sport. I bet he is. Where can I find him? What do you want him for? I want to talk to him. That's all. Where's he live? Up a tree. Like I said, Buster Blow. And like I said, baby, this is important. So important, I'll have a lopsided line in the next number if you don't talk, because you won't be there. You'll be on your way to the pokey. Now, where does he live? I don't know. He's from Canada. You can come closer than that, sweetheart. Give. All right. He tells me he takes a walk in the park every night. He raves about the, the gladiolas. Like they grow in Coldwater Canyon Park, maybe? Maybe. Hmm. Thanks. You're a good kid. Keep your powder dry, baby. I'll see you. That park looked deserted when a half hour later I drove by it to the far end, turned down a side street and stopped. But as I started in on foot, I saw him, Spats, Hamburg, Kane, and Alias, ambling slowly away from me along a back path. I started after him quietly, and when he got near a corner, I was close enough to hail him, and then grabbed. But I didn't get the chance. Stand still and keep your mouth shut. I turned slowly. It was the gentleman with the big feet, and he wasn't much uglier, just a little flabbier than the automatic wrapped up in his fist. You seem to be falling over my feet every time I turn around. I noticed that. But I figured the first time was coincidence. What do you figure now? That our gay dog, Mr. Crowley, who just turned that corner there, is wagging two tails. But you hold the gavel, Chairman. And don't you forget it, either. So he gave you the name Crowley, did he? Mm-hmm. Why, you think he's got another one? Stop that. We both know he's lying. What I don't know is why he took that name or why you're interested. It's a hobby. I collect old geezers with more than one name. You're going to handle hard, huh? You won't tell me? Well, I don't know your angle, either. Uh, we uh, might work out a trade, huh? No. I'm not wasting any more time, either. You're not going to get away from me again. And that means you'd better stay right here. Oh! He piled me up on the ground with a stomach full of pain. I saw him run down the path. When I got back to my feet, he was taking the corner. And just started after him when it came. I froze and listened. But there was nothing more to hear. I walked softly as far as the corner. He was face down the toes of his oversized shoes, digging into the grass, and the gun he hadn't time to use spilled a few inches away from his clenched, dead hand. And across the park and rushing for Coldwater Canyon Road, as fast as his feet could go, was a bum with two names and a Hamburg hat. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... 30 minutes packed full of talent, music, and fun. That's the Horace Height Original Youth Opportunity Show coming your way every Sunday evening on CBS. Yes, this fall, you'll hear them all on CBS. A galaxy of stars. And one of the brightest is genial Horace Height, who keeps the fun rolling with one hand and with the other pushes open the door to opportunity. Gives a talented youngster his big break toward fame and fortune in show business. Remember, Sunday night... It's Horace Height and his original youth opportunity program. Listen every Sunday, starting this Sunday, over most of the same CBS stations. Tune in, tune in this fall for the shows that you love best of all. Listen carefully. Here's the address. It's CBS, CBS. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story... The bums rush. When I took after the fleeing figure known to my Aunt Jessie as Jonathan Mitre, or Ross J. Crowley, he was still barely visible ahead with arms and legs flailing the night air like so many test streamers in a wind tunnel. I didn't know any more about his double identity than I had before. But I did know that what might have started as only a confidence game of sorts 
had now mushroomed in a murder with the aforesaid gentleman very much involved. And a moment later, when I saw him breathless and afraid, duck into a sagging, deserted wooden shack that showed a single red light and was labeled Department of Parks, Fire Equipment, Private, I figured the right time and place had come to talk it all over. When I finally carefully stepped inside and announced both myself and 38 in hand in definite Centaurian tones, he agreed wholeheartedly. All right. All right. I'll come out just as you say, sir, with my hands up. <laughs> After all, I, I've no reason to hide. Other than murder, no. What murder? That noise I heard. That's what it was. Somebody was shot. No, somebody was run over by a bullet rolling downhill at a terrific rate of speed. Now shut up and turn around, Pop. Hands still high. Time we got cautious. Are you searching for a gun on me, sir? <laughs> Young man, you must be out of your mind. First, you insist that I'm a Mr. Mitre, Mitre. Somebody I never heard of. And you're convinced that I'm a murderer. I don't understand you. There. No gun? Now, you satisfied? No, intrigued. Where'd you throw it? I didn't. I never had one. Anything else? Yeah, the name Crowley, Ross J. Why do you use it? Because it's mine. And that young man is a very common customer. <laughs> now... Do you mind if I leave? I do. Uh, now, look, old-timer. Uh, I'm only going to be nice about this for a little while because, first of all, there's a fresh corpse outside, and where I stand, you could be responsible for it. And second of all... Second of all, there's my angle, where I fit, who I work for, facts, and I don't want to reveal them unless I have to. Now, from the top, you and the dead guy, the connection, what is it? I haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about. You haven't, huh? Okay, Pop, we play it straight all the way. Now, listen. My name's Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective, and I know when it's time to blow a whistle. Don't move, Marlowe, or you never will again. Oh, fine. Marsha. That's right, Marsha. All loaded down with a nasty old 45 automatic that makes her look and feel very unladylike. Drop it, Marlowe. Come on. That's better. Now, Mr. Crowley, without waiting for Marlowe to apologize, go on. Go, but, but where... To the hotel. It's important, so hurry. Oh, yes, very well. I won't waste a second. Uh... Keith. You won't need the key. Somebody's waiting for you. Goodbye, Mr. Crowley. Uh, uh, goodbye. I hope I never meet you again, Mr. Maitland. Good night. <laughs> it's cute, isn't it? Uh-huh, darling. The moment unimportant. Right now, you're my only concern, Marlowe. Oh, that's nice, Marsha. It's cozy. Just the three of us. You and that giant U.S. pistol, caliber 45. Say, baby, that's not your gun, is it? No. You feel slighted? Oh, no, no, sweet. Happy. Stay back, Marlowe. Why? I'll shoot. No, no, you won't. You can't. I warn you, Marlo. No, no, no. You see, baby, step of the three safety devices I mean... on that army gun, that doohickey Marlo, there on I'm the gonna... side is one. It won't Stay work back. unless it's in the forward on, position. Oh, ah. no big jerk. Let go of when me. When school's out, I will. Now, the Go first ahead. question, teacher. Come on, you and Grandpa, me. alias Jonathan Mart, also alias Ross J. Crowley, what's the game you two are playing? I don't know. Where does Hirsch fit in? Oh. Come on, it's getting late. The soft pupil wants an answer. He's anxious to get to the head of the class. Talk. What is it? I don't remember, and I won't, so don't bother getting masculine or polishing apples, pupil. When I forget, I forget for a long, long time. Is that clear? Yeah, it is. And since I can't wait, since I want to go out and play, well, we'll put oh, you in here to safe keeping. Hey, honey, you don't, you don't mind if I go through your bag, do you? <laughs> I didn't think you would. Oh, here's a key that says in what room I'll find the team of Crowley and Miner. My, my, such a temper. After I'd picked up my 38, which the lady, who no longer sounded like one, had made me drop, and to check the hotel key that read Villa 12, Wiltshire Gardens, Beverly Hills, I ran outside and back toward my car in what I figured should be a big hurry. But when I was halfway there, I had a premonition the speed was not to be. A premonition that was a head dressed in blue, carrying a club, wearing a badge, and leaning on my right front fender. And it wasn't until I was next to him that I quit worrying about a long, involved delay. Because the officer on hand, one Kurt Lemley, was an old and, I hope, still good friend. Well, hiya, Phil. Been waiting here for you since I called in about that body up there. Some kid heard the shot. Oh. So you had once pegged this all alone in very suspicious-looking car, Yeah, huh? surprised it was yours. I'm disappointed. I'd hoped the name of the owner's tag was going to be Raleigh Newcomb. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know his name? Don't you? No. Now, we were on different sides when he got shot. No, he's from Canada. What? Yeah, Vancouver. He had a business up there with a guy named Ross J. Crowley. Crowley? Mm-hmm. Hey, Kurt, how'd you find all this out? I found a clipping in his wallet. It's got a picture on it. Oh, wait, right here. Wait a second, I'll put a light on it. Yeah, hurry up, will you? I see. See, two guys in front of a building. Raleigh Newcomb and Ross J. Crowley officiated the opening up Sure, it's what I figured the guy's a liar. I've already met a guy who insisted that's his name, and he's more like the Crowley in the picture. 
Yeah, but there's a similarity in, even though the picture's anything but clear. What guy are you talking about, Phil? Jonathan Miter, an old geezer I was hired to find. Hmm? Bum who's pulling something fancy that incidentally ties in real tight with that murder over there. You know where he is, sir? Sure I know. That's where I was heading when I ran into you. Who? Ran into what? What is it? It's a picture. What? Kurt. Yeah? Move your thumb up a little, will you? The way you just had it. My thumb? Yeah, yeah, move it. That's it, like that. Oh, brother, brother, have I got a hunch. How about what? Another murder, a neat one that's scheduled to come off any minute at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel. I'll see you later. Goodbye. At best, it was ten screeching stop-and-go minutes from Coldwater Canyon Park across Beverly Hills to the Wilshire Gardens Hotel on the boulevard of the same name. And all the way, I kept hoping, over time, that one of two things was so. Either my hunch was wrong and nobody else was going to get hurt for a while, or it was right and I was still on time. But when I was there, parked and running toward the villa number 10, which was a silent stucco square, choking to death under ivy, and showing only a single light in the living room, I was almost sure that it was going to play still another way. Me right and too late to do any good. When I tried the door and found it open, and inside saw at once the letter propped up against a lamp on an end table that I'd been afraid I'd find, there was no longer any doubt. And even as I crossed the room, I knew that I was going to read a suicide note addressed to the police, telling them that the undersigned Ross J. Crowley had taken his own life, as well as that of the partner he'd been stealing from, Raleigh Newcomb, who had currently been pursuing him. But I didn't know until I reached for the letter to make sure that I'd figured right was the last line, just before the signature. It read, Also, rather than face the humility of being dragged through the courts for killing Newcomb, they have taken the life of a man who would have caught me. A private detective named Philip Marlowe. You lead well, Marlowe. What? Especially when it's your own obituary. No, hey. don't move. <clears throat> well, Mr. Hirsch, huh? Or do I call you Crowley now? Doesn't matter, Marlowe. Suit yourself. What does matter is that you're not quite the boy genius you think you are. Meaning what? Meaning, Marcia. You talk to her at the plumes, then she talked to me. Between the two of us, we've maneuvered you around just like we wanted to. So we could include you in our plans. In other words, Marlowe, when Marsha sent Mida here from the park, we knew you'd follow. Marsha's reliable. Yeah, all year round, I'll bet. Okay, Crowley, so the one with two heads isn't Jonathan Mida, it's you. You is Eldon Hirsch here in L.A. There's Ross J. Crowley, Newcomb's partner up in Canada. A crooked partner, Crowley, who when he knew he was going to be caught, decided to kill himself but with another guy's body. Jonathan Mida, so it wouldn't hurt. Exactly. Also, Marlowe, nobody will bother to look past what will pass as Crowley's body for the murderer of Newcomb, who I didn't expect on the scene. I think you'll admit it's all accounted for in that letter there in Crowley's, uh, my handwriting. Bravo, you skipped nothing. Now, what about me? Yes, you. You must go before Jonathan Mida, you know. Otherwise, the coroner might find something wrong with the sequence of death. So it's you first, then Mida. Who no doubt is unconscious in the bedroom right now? No, Mr. Marlowe, who no doubt is standing right here listening carefully. Mida, you crazy fool. Stay where you are. No, Mr. Crowley, I won't. That way I die. This way at least I have a chance. Go, Crowley. My shoulder. Mida, you all right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Just wing. Oh, you you got him, didn't you, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, I... No. (laughs) No, Jonathan, you got him. That rush did it, you big... Bum, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, bum. It was two long hours of first aid for Jonathan. Arrest on the charge of murder for both Crowley and the accomplice before and after the fact, Martha. And questions and answers and triplicates for the police before... Mida and I were finally alone and back in my office waiting for a call we put through to, of course, Eagles Rock, Montana. But even then, the gentleman vagabond couldn't quite get over things. Then, in other words, Mr. Marlowe, uh, this Crowley who introduced himself to me as Hirsch had his fiendish plan already formulated. And on one of his trips down from Canada saw me when his train stopped at Eagles Rock. I was raking leaves around the depot. And he saw me... And he hired me on the spot because he needed someone to fit the part of his corpse. That's huh? it. And you'll admit you were well qualified for the job, alone in the world. Except for Jesse, yes. Which you didn't happen to mention. And the fact that you were bald. Uh, that's true, true. Don't be sensitive. 
You see, Crowley or Hirsch was also bald. What? All that hair of his a week? That's right. Toupee, every bit of it. And incidentally, you see, the reason I caught on to things, Johnny, a policeman found a newspaper picture of Newcomb and Crowley in Newcomb's wallet. Which told you that I couldn't be Crowley. That's right. It also told me more. When the policeman accidentally put his thumb over the bald part of Crowley's head, it gave me a different picture. Uh-huh. Then I only paid attention to what I could see, features blurred though they were. Which then you were Hershey's. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hello. Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. This is Marlowe speaking. On your call to Miss Jessie Gavins in Eagles Rock, Montana. One moment, please, sir. Here. Here, take it, Jonathan. Me? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, speak. All right, all right. Hello, Jesse. Jessica. This is Johnny. Yeah, Cuddles. Yeah, it's me. I'm in Los Angeles with Mr. Marlowe. Cuddles, you don't have to shout so loud, you know. She's clean up there, Eagle. I know, but she can hear you. Just talk. Jessica. Jessica, you get what happened now. I'll tell you. A man hired me to work for him. To pose... Deposed, uh, impersonated a Mr. Ross J. Crowley because he said he had to be free to investigate some crooked people who would try and contact me. Yeah. <laughs> and since he offered good money, right on the spot there, Jessica, I took the job. I thought you'd be proud of me making extra money. No, wait a minute, Jessica. Mr. Marlowe, I better cut this short, had I? It's long distance. It's cost money. Don't worry about it, Johnny. There's no hurry. Take your time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, Jessica! Jessica, now what this man really wanted, you there, Jessica? What uh, was to use me as a corpse? That's right, a body. Oh, his! I feel fine. You see, he was going to put uh, his rings on me, another identification, to knock me unconscious. Get me through the By the time I got Jonathan Mitre down to Union Station and aboard a northbound train with specific instructions to stay away from strangers, and got back to my own apartment on Franklin. It was better than three o'clock in the morning. Oh, and I was tired. I emptied out my pockets and started to undress. But I forgot about that when my eye fell on the picture that Jessie Gavins had sent me in her original letter. The picture of Jonathan. Well, now Aunt Jessie was going to be happy. But I wondered for how long. Somehow the portrait of the man with a hole with a solid look of the ages didn't fit the spare frame of Jesse's night of the road. A lonesome train whistle would blow in the night and Jonathan Mida would be gone. Adventures of Philip Marlowe star Gerald Moore and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Georgia Ellis, Hans Conrad, Ann Morrison, Herb Butterfield, Wilms Herbert, and Bill Boucher. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... The lady tourist was a school teacher out after glamour, and she got it. But only after she learned that in Hollywood, the three R's could be reading, done in a dark room, writing found in a dead man's pocket, and arithmetic that added up to murder times two. think you've got troubles, you should be married to Liz Cooper. She can scare up more trouble than a tropical hurricane, but it's always the kind of trouble you can laugh at because it's all part of My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball. My Favorite Husband is part of CBS's great laugh lineup for Friday night. You won't want to miss a single minute of My Favorite Husband. And you'll want to be around, too, to hear the Goldbergs, Leave it to Joan, and Breakfast with Burroughs. They'll all be broadcast on Friday nights over most of these CBS stations starting next Friday. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same stations.
This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. The lady tourist was a school teacher out after glamour, and she got it. But only after she learned that in Hollywood, the three R's could be reading, done in a dark room, writing, found in a dead man's pocket, and arithmetic that added up to murder times two. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's transcribed story, The Rustin Hickory. It was hot in my apartment, even at 10 o'clock at night. The sultry wind blowing through curtains at the far side of the room didn't help a bit. It was the kind of night that made me wish I was something else, a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, anything. After a long, hot day spent in the downtown courts of law, listening to the petty arguments of a petty larceny case, I was tired of petty people. The paper I had picked up on my way home wasn't helping any. Ten killed in an air crash. Mental cruelty, says local songbird. I made myself another highball, lots of ice, easy with water, and picked up the paper again. It was still more of the same. Cy Nestor killed in office on Sunset Strip. Cy Nestor. <laughs> He'd hit the papers before. Bookie, B-minus picture producer, general racketeer. Somehow I wasn't too surprised he was on the receiving end for a change. My drink was good for ten more pages of equally dull reading, and I was set for the next in line when the phone rang. Mr. Philip Marlowe? It was the first attractive voice I'd heard all day. Mr. Marlowe? And you know... I thought she might be fun. My name is Joan Rustin, and I'm only here in Hollywood from Ferndale, Nebraska, on a vacation, and I wanted to have some fun. You know, see the nightclubs and the uh, stars hey. and that sort of thing. Hey, wait a minute, Joan. I don't want trouble, Mr. Uh, Marlowe. Hold it. Uh, teacher. I... Hey. Yes? Let's back up a little, huh? Now, your name is Joan Rustin. You're from Ferndale, Nebraska, which you're right, I've never heard of. Also, you're a school teacher. That much I got. <laughs> but the rest about the sights, the last part, the trouble. Oh, but don't you see? They're the one and the same. Oh? I wanted to step out. Nightclubs, movie stars, glamour. But it didn't end up like that because he was shot, and then I didn't who know what to shot? do. And his name's Aubrey Nickel. He's the man who took me out to show me the club. Anyhow, after it happened, I ran. Why? Why? The publicity, of course. Mr. Marlowe, I'd lose my job. You see, I'm a school Yeah, you said that, honey. Now, look, where are you, Joan? The Julep Room. It's a bar on Sunset and La Cienega Boulevard. You'll come right over, huh? Huh? Yeah, I'll come right over, huh? <laughs> Goodbye, Joan. <laughs> Yeah, but where are you? Over here in this booth. Hurry. Okay, hurry it is. <laughs> Hello. Now tell me why all the secrecy and you... Uh, oh. And what? Oh, what are you staring at? You? I expected braids, Joan. Horn rims. Calico, maybe. <laughs> Not ice blue satin, draped, plunging, and... Uh... Yes? Uh, yes. <laughs> Start at the top, honey, and slow this time, huh? Well, yesterday I met this man, this Aubrey Nickel I mentioned. Oh, he's really nice, Mr. Marlowe. He's a photographer, has a darling place up on the Sunset, uh... Sunset uh, Strip. Uh, you went there to have your picture taken? Uh-huh. I wanted something, well, something glamorous. That's easy. And look, look, here's what I got. Oh, uh, by the way, I ordered a drink for you, a Scotch drink. Here. You like Scotch drinks, don't you? Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> Scotch drinks are my favorite drinks, Joan, thanks. You're welcome. Now, isn't it wonderful? The picture, I mean. I'll say it is. I'd never say school teacher. No, that's the idea. Just like a model in a fashion magazine, isn't it? Aubrey took it from inside his photo shop while I was outside on the street looking in his window. You know, like a smart career girl just strolling along the avenue. Mm -hmm. And see how he faded out the background? That way I'm the, uh, the focal center. Focal center. Isn't it nice? Oh, yes, it is, yeah. But look, Joan, the rest of the story. Now, the man was shot. You don't want publicity, remember? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Well... We made a date, Mr. Marlowe, for tonight. I was to be at his place, his shop on the strip at 8, which I was. But when I got there... He was gone. Well, oh, he might just as well have been for all the attention he paid to me. Huh? He had something on his mind. Acted as though he didn't even expect me. Why, I had to mention his picture here twice before he got it out of a drawer for me. 
But then, just like Daddy James, said if I wanted glamour and nightclubs, why not? Oh, by all means, why not? And off we went to Cyrano's, no less, and sat at a table with two men and a woman who was actually Ermgard Fury. Actually who? Ermgard Fury, the starlet. Oh. Don't you read the papers? Oh, golly, her picture's been in every theater section and magazine for the last six months. Of course, she hasn't made a movie yet, but she probably will. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Ermgard Fury, she has red hair, a figure, lots of each, huh? Oh, that's right. Mm. Oh, and so sweet to talk to. Well, believe it or not, when we were in the powder room and she couldn't find her lipstick, she used mine. Now, that's really democratic. <laughs> Look, uh, Joan, there was a shooting. You remember that. Now, you were sitting at a table with three men in this Ermgard uh, Fury? That's right. Uh, well, go on. What happened next? Well, when Miss Fury and I got back to the table, Mr. Lacey and his friend were gone... And then a minute later, Aubrey excused himself to make a phone call. And then? And then a waiter brought me a note from Aubrey which said I should go back to my hotel and wait there till I heard from him. Then it happened. Hmm. Look, Joan, if I'm going to help you on this, you've got to tell the whole coherent story. Well, uh. suddenly there were some shots, maybe from outside. And people were yelling. It was terrible. I was scared to death. And I ran outside. People were crowded around someone. It was Aubrey. He was dead. What'd you do then? I took the first taxi I could get to my hotel, the Beverly Crest. I started from my bungalow, but didn't go inside because, because there was a man hanging around. I'd seen him before someplace, and I didn't like his looks, and he turned away, and he called to me. Oh, he was awful, Mr. Marlowe. Awful looking like a frog, maybe? Sloping shoulders, bulging eyes? Yes, and when... Mr. Marlowe, how do you know what he looked like? Promise not to tell. Promise not to... Oh, Mr. Marlowe, he's here, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Been watching us for quite a while. Oh, holy smokes, and I didn't get away from him. Oh, Mr. Marlowe, I had nothing to do with his shooting. What can I do? I simply can't be mixed up in this terrible business. Oh, please, Mr. Marlowe, I'll pay you anything only get me out of this, please. Uh, we'll talk about that later, Joni. Now, look, when we get up, keep talking and don't look away from me. Uh, then when we're outside and around the taxi stand there, duck away from me fast and get in close to the building and stay there till the frogman is gone. Then uh, head for your hotel bungalow and wait till you hear from me. Now, you got that? Well, yes, but... I don't understand why he's going to leave us. You will, if our little coup works. Come on. It played easier than I'd expected, because like a good shadow, the frogman gave us a small head start, which was all I needed. The second Joan darted away from me, I moved quickly up to the first cabin line, opened and slammed the rear door fast, said goodbye out loud to Joan, who was not in the back seat. Then slipped the driver five, winked hard, and practically shouted a very faraway address at him. When he lurched in the curb, I stood there and waved a minute. It was what was still supposed to be Joan. Then, even as I saw the frogman dart across the street, pile into his own car and take off after the cab, I walked slowly back into the bar where I had another scotch drink and did some fast checking on the current location of Aubrey Nichols, which was the Dawson Memorial Hospital. Then I started outside for my car after stopping en route at the booth where Joan and I had been sitting to pick up a pair of gloves and glamour portrait. My new little client had left on the seat. <laughs> the school mom had been upset indeed. Dawson Memorial Hospital, Dr. Chambers? Yes, one moment, please. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Oh, I want to know the condition of a patient who was brought in here a little while ago, Mr. Aubrey Nickel. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We're not allowed to give out such information. You'll have to inquire at the superintendent's office. Sir, Joe, I I'm wouldn't not... bother, Phil. Well, Detective Lieutenant Matthews, good evening. Good evening. Nickel is dead, Marlowe. We oh. did not get a statement from him. That's too bad. Any idea who did it? No. <clears throat> have you? Uh-uh. I didn't even know him. A client of mine. Yeah, uh, Mr. Smith. That's right. That's remarkable. Yeah, Mr. Smith, he asked me to inquire about his condition. Uh-huh. Well, it happened about an hour ago in an alley behind Cyrano's. Aubrey Nickel was a photographer up on the strip, but pretty much of a phony. A big front boy, strictly. That's all there was to it, huh? Walk down here with me a little. Oh, sure, sure. We figure there may be some connection between this shooting and Cy Nestor's death this afternoon. Nestor also had an office on the strip. What do you figure the tie-in is, Matthew? A man named Ham Lacey. You ever hear of him? Yeah. He was one of Nestor's number one boys in the racket, right? Yeah, something like that. Mm. Of course, officially, Ham Lacey is known as the vice president of Nestor Enterprises Incorporated. Also production manager of that second-rate movie studio Nestor owns. Mm. Well, anyway, Lacey, another man, and Aubrey Nickel were at Cyrano's tonight with a starlet named Ermgard Fury... And another gal we haven't been able to tag yet. Now, tell now, wait me... Wait a minute, Lieutenant. Fight. When Nestor what? was killed, did it look like the usual mob tactics? No, no. Nestor was beat up by fists. 
Not sapped, not cut up with brass knives. Oh. Your death was caused by a blow to the temple from a poker that was standing next to a phony fireplace in which you could have hit his head when he fell. Well, probably not Lacey and Associates, yeah, huh? Probably not. He's got an alibi. Yeah? Hmm. Besides, we already got a fair line on who did it and why. We found a note in Nestor's pocket signed D. Tobin, which threatened Nestor with a beating if he didn't stay away from the undersigned's wife and send her back home at once. Nestor, you may or may not happen to know, had this Im- Imgard Fury or something under contract to him, saw lots of her. So, again, the two deaths more or less tied together. Yeah, you've already talked to... Uh, oh, by the way, her name is Ermgard Fury. I... No, 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 I ain't talked to her. I figured I'd wait till I knew a little more. Also, I didn't figure Nickel would die without saying anything. No. Oh. Well, now it's your turn. We found this negative in the alley near Nickel's body. This is a night shot of the Sunset Strip and nothing more. Means anything to you? No, why should it? Now, look, I told you before, Lieutenant, I never even met Nickel. Yeah, and I listened, didn't I? I noticed. Yeah, but now let's level a bit, huh, Phil? Who your client is and what he or she has to do with this is one thing as long as we're both on the same side. But playing dumb when it might count is quite another. Now, one more, Phil, huh? The picture? Still zero, Lieutenant. Uh, Anna Bright. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, just to save you a little time, Phil. Yeah, let's do. Ermgard Fury's address, 441 West Bedford Drive, Beverly Hills. You got a 441 West Bedford Drive. Now, play it close. Be sure to call when you think it's time. And if you're wondering about why all this help from me, try this. What you know and won't tell, plus what I know and will tell, might do the trick. Say goodbye to me, Phil. Goodbye. Yes? Miss Fury, my name's Philip Marlowe. I must talk to you at once. About what? Uh, your husband. I'm a friend of his, and he asked me to get in touch with you. It's because of what happened this afternoon up on the Strip. Oh? Well, what's wrong? Is is Dave here in town? Yeah, right? yeah, he is, and he's in trouble. You see, the police are after him. All and right, I... hold it, mister. You've said enough. Huh? What are you, cop or a reporter? Oh, now, wait a minute, Miss Fury. I've already told you I'm a friend of Dave. Whose name I... happens to be Douglas, Mr. Douglas Tobin. Keep that in mind when you try this next time. Good night. Uh-uh, not so fast, baby. The mistake was mine, but I still want to talk to you. So do a lot of men. I'll bet. Now beat it before... Thank God. Uh, before I forget myself. What's the trouble, then, God? Oh, no trouble, Hamilton, darling. This gentleman was just leaving. He had the wrong address. He, um... He made a mistake, didn't you, Mr. Marlowe? Yes. Yes, a blunder. A thousand apologies and uh, good night, Mrs. Tobin. For what it was worth, it worked. At the mention of the name Tobin, Ham Lacey spun around like he was built on a pivot, and his eyes that were narrow slits with all the come-hither look of a cobra's never left me. As I slowly walked away from him and passed the yellow convertible he'd just driven up in. License number 6969X, California. And on out to the street. All of which only meant that Lieutenant Matthews was probably right about there being some connection between Cy Nestor's murder and the death of Aubrey Nichol. When I opened the door of my car and started to climb in under the wheel, the voice in the night helped not at all. If you don't do as I say, I'll kill you. Okay, okay. Now get out. Take it easy. All right. Now close the door and turn around. You're back to me. Now look, if this is a stick-up, Busty, you can save us both a lot of time. Shut up. I... I'm not a hold-up man. Now move over there, close to those trees. Go on. I want to ask you a question. All right, that's far enough. Now, what have you got to do with Helen? Helen who? Helen Tope. Ermgard Fury. That's what she's known as now. What have you got to do with her? Tell me. Very little, Mr. Tobin. Tobin? Do you know who I am? And so do the police. Now why don't you call it quits while you're still in one piece? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Not quits. That's what you want. What all of you want. Me arrested and out of the way in jail and maybe out of the way for good. No, no. But that won't be. Helen's mine, and you're not going to harm her. Careful, Tobin. You're getting excited. Yes, excited. Excited enough for this. Go! In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, a thrill a minute. High-tension suspense from the word go. Dramatic excitement that builds and builds until it explodes in a smashing climax. That's Inner Sanctum, the great mystery show that's another of CBS's top-notch Monday night programs. You'll find Inner Sanctum one of the most entertaining spots in your Monday night listening schedule. And remember, Lux Radio Theater is back for its 15th year of great dramatic presentations. Inner Sanctum and Lux Radio Theater, every Monday night, 
over most of these same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Rustin Hickory. When the whirling pinwheels of light slowed down to being street lamps again, Douglas Tobin had pounded shoe leather on enough sidewalk to be safely out of sight. But it took a full minute of rubbing the bruise where his pistol had glanced off my head before I... I finally remembered that it was a good time to call Joan. I looked back at Ermgard Fury's house first and saw the lights still on, the cream-colored convertible still parked in front and all apparently quiet inside. So I limped as far as the phone booth on the corner to warn my client that the trick we pulled on the frog wouldn't hold up forever. But instead I found out just how far this side of forever it had collapsed. Yeah, hello. Hello. Hey, what number is this? What are you doing there? Where's Joan Rustin? Oh, the babe's here, but she ain't in much of a mood to talk. Incidentally, thanks for giving me this free time, Dippy. What are you talking about? That fast shuffle you tossed me, Dippy. That now you see her, now you don't gag with the taxi. <laughs> For an old shell game operator like me, that one was as tough to see through as a glass bottom boat. All right, all right. You get your diploma in the morning, but listen, you, if anything happens to Miss Rustin, I'll skip break it, you. Skip it, skip it, Dippy. You're wasting your breath. It's already happened. I'll see you around. So long. Joan. Joan, come on, baby. Come on. Snap out of here. Oh, I told you stay away from me. Hey. Get out of here. Hey, you hold ain't it. It's me, me Joanie. Marlowe. Marlowe. Yeah. Oh, oh Marlowe. Come on, honey. What happened? Are you hurt, Joan? That man, the one with the gruff voice. Yeah. He forced his way in here, Marlowe. He was looking for something. I tried to stop him. I, I was going to scream, but I, I guess that's when he put the bite on me. That slug, baby. Well, anyway, he hit me hard. And I've never been treated that way before in my whole life. You've never been buddies with murder before, either. Come on, honey, get up off the floor, huh? Easy now. There. Hey, he turned your place inside out, too, didn't he? What was he after, Joni? Oh, I don't know. He just told me to quit stalling and hand it over. I didn't know what he meant, so he shoved me. Then he pulled out all the books here and tore up the rugs. Yeah, and... He was looking for something small and flat like a... Wait a minute, wait a minute, sure. The cops found a negative near Aubrey Nichols tonight, but it was worthless. There must have been another one, an important one. And Lacey and Froggy, who no doubt is Helm Bay, must think you've got it. Me? Well, that's impossible. All I had was my picture, and, well, I don't even have that now. No, but I do. Out in my car, and it gives me a great idea. Come on. Well, where, Marlowe? I don't get it. What's my photograph got to do with this? Maybe plenty. You see, when Aubrey printed that picture of you, he faded out the background almost completely. You remember? Uh-huh. That's a stunt in fashion photography to make a subject stand out. But in this case, Joan, I figure it was played strictly in reverse. Well, how do you mean? That Aubrey took you to Cyrano's tonight on business. Big business. And you were holding the merchandise for him all the way. Oh. Here. Let's take a look. Oh, Marlowe, my pretty picture frame. Better this than your pretty head later, sweetheart, believe me. Uh-huh, yeah, here it is. Look, see? A negative the size of a postage stamp. But I'll bet old flashbulbs the $10 bills this baby's really loaded. Ah, uh, my... Marlowe, hmm? I bet that baby's loaded, too. What are you talking about? The gun in that man's hand there behind you. Oh, fine. Wait, wait. Easy, Marlowe. I'm I'm not looking for any more trouble. I just want to be sure that you'll help me first. You're a private detective. I, I searched you before, so I know. I'm in a jam. It's worse than I figured. The cops are after me for murder. No kidding. I can't understand it, Tobin. All you got is a motive deep enough to swim in, and you've been dropping clues like Hansel and Gretel dropped pebbles. All right, all right, but I didn't do it. Well, I beat up Sign Esther, sure, but well, he was going with Helen, my Helen. I hated everything and everybody in this phony town because they took her away from me. Even changed her name for her, Ermgard Fury. But I didn't kill Nestor. I, I swear I didn't. You've got to help me, Marlowe. With that thirty-eight in your fist, are you asking or telling? Oh, I'm asking, brother. Here, here, take it. Take the gun. I'm in a fix, and I know it. Okay, hothead. I'm already in Dutch for hiding Matthew's key witness here. Think how I'll look keeping his chief suspect under wraps, too. Yet, yeah. Oh, maybe I'm a sucker, but I believe you. All right, where do you hang your hat? The country cottage is number seven. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a motel court down on Melrose Street. Number seven. Now go there and stay out of sight. And I mean stay out of sight. Yeah, yeah oh, okay. Uh, thanks, Marlowe. Say, uh, I'm sorry I batted you down tonight. That makes a lot of difference to the lump on my head. Go on, Tobin, beat it. Okay, okay. I'll keep in touch with you. Uh, where are we going, Marlowe? Call a friend of mine. We need a big enlargement of a small negative. Negative. <laughs> 
Hiya, Shermie. This is Phil Marlowe. No kidding. Gee, how's business, Phil? Long, long, long time no see. Yeah, I know. Now, look, are you busy? I got a job that's right down your alley, Sherman. It's important. What is it, Marlowe? Well, it's a 35-millimeter negative. I want it blown up to about half as big as a house. Okay, bring it in. I can't. I, I, I've got to check a couple of other things at the same time. Now, look, Shermie, can you meet me at the Aubrey Nichols studio on the strip in about 10 minutes, back uh-huh. door? Wait a minute. Back door? Yeah. How come? So we can kick it in without attracting too much attention. Shermie, I'll see you in ten minutes. I piled Joan into the car, drove down the strip, and once past Nickel Studio, which was enough. Joan had posed for a picture in front of the place and directly across the street, behind her, just as I knew it had to be, was a neat plastic sign reading Sign Esther Enterprises on the diminutive but glossy imitation Swiss chalet where Nestor's body had been found. We turned, doubled back through the alley, and found Sherman bobbing up and down like a nervous gopher. Five minutes of not-so-subtle persuasion got us past the lock and inside Aubrey's studio where something else checked. The walls were practically papered with pictures of Ermgard Fury, taken from every conceivable angle, including some that were not. Things were beginning to make a lot of sense. Uh, Marlo, is this all right? Uh, coming in here, I mean, it's sort of uninvited and all. It's breaking and entering, lady. You can get five years for it. I sure hope you know what you're doing. Yeah, Phil. this must be the dark room. Yeah. Now, here's the negative, Shermie. Do your stuff. Well, what do you really expect to find on the film, Marlowe? A murderer, baby. It's got to go one of two ways. Douglas Tobin for jealousy or Ham Lacey for ambition. Aubrey Nickel caught one of the two in the background when he took your picture. And he was familiar enough with all parties concerned over there to think he could put the screws on somebody. How's it coming, Shermie? He can get out in a minute. Mm-hmm. Fifteen by twenty, okay? Yeah, it's good. If there isn't a man in the background, I'll eat it. We'd better get salt and pepper, pal, because it's nothing but a car. See? It can't be. It... Oh, brother, that's more than a car, Shermie. It's a yellow convertible that belongs to Ham Lacey. Look, you can even see the license, 6969X. 696? Six, oh, now how do you suppose... Well, what, what's the matter, Marlowe? I just thought of something. Without this picture, both Tobin and Lacey are suspects. But with it, we have proof Lacey is implicated. That means Lacey thinks he has Tobin sitting in the perfect frame, right where he wants him. Oh, Marlo, listen. Now, look, you two get out of here. Go back to the paper. I've got to get to Tobin fast and let him know. Oh, Phil, listen, look, I baby, don't... you're no doubt terrific in the third grade. But some things they don't even teach in college are going to pop any minute, so I'll take it from here, huh? Stick with Shermie, honey. I'll call you. Oh, but Marlo, wait, listen. I made it from the strip down to Melrose and then east to the cluster of dusty lean-tools with baths known as country cottages in something under ten minutes. Parked down the street and cut back through the alley on foot. I got to the door of cottage number seven with about 30 seconds to spare. No, no, no. Wait a minute, mister. You got me wrong. Oh, no, I haven't, pal. You can tell me you didn't knock off sign Esther, and I'll believe you. But nobody else will. I've got you right where I want you. Now, wait a minute. Because of your note found in Nestor's pocket. You're the jilted boyfriend, the hick from back home, who came to Hollywood with murder in your heart. And knocked off the guy who stole your wife. Now, look, Yeah, you're... and then you went after the cheap photographer who gave her her stuff. Oh, yeah? And after that, you knew you couldn't escape, so you blew your brains yeah, out. Fine. And by the time I leave here, that's the way it's going to look. Not tonight, Ham. Uh, yeah, stand still, Lacey. Toss the gun over on the bed. Go on! That's better. So you figured Aubrey was lying about having a picture that pegged you as Sinister's killer, didn't you? You figured Aubrey saw something but had no proof, so you shot him. But you were wrong, Ham. He had all the proof we need. Well, Joan, who's out there? Joan, Joan, are you all right? I hit her. She's the one who killed Sign Esther. I tried to tell you that. I followed you here to tell you, but instead I saw her with a gun pointed at you. I I grabbed the first thing I saw, this broken rake handle, and I hit her with it. I hit her awfully hard, Phil. But she isn't moving. You don't think she's... Dead? No. (laughs) She's probably thinking over the big lesson you just taught her with that stick there. (laughs) What? What's the matter? Hey, Teach, you know what that rake handle's made of? Hickory, isn't it? Yeah. What else could it possibly be but a hickory stick? All right, Marlowe. All right. Nobody can hear us. Now, what is it? 
Well, it's that Miss Rustin here is a school teacher, Matthews, and it's imperative that we keep her name out of this. Oh, well, we can arrange that. Oh, good. You know, Matthews, it's funny how one step leads to another. Yeah? Ham Lacey never would have gone so far as to kill Nestor on his own. But when he learned that Ermgard had done it, he saw an opportunity to turn the whole situation to his advantage. He and the girl agreed to frame Tobin and then go along as a team. You know, of course, that that's just your theory. Just a minute. Now, what do you mean? sit down over there and be quiet for a change while uh, Miss Rustin and I wind this up. Matthews, listen. Now, quiet, I... please. Pulling rank, huh? Phil. Now, <clears throat> Miss Rustin, in solving this case, Just you, a minute. Uh... She didn't solve the case. I... Miss Rustin, if you hadn't solved it, and right when you did, you'd be talking to this guy exclusively via Ouija board from now on. Let's face it. Oh, what a corny pitch. Now, tell me, Miss Rustin, uh... How did you peg Ermgard Fury? Well, when we got the picture of the yellow convertible, I remembered that I'd gone to the powder room at Cyrano's with Miss Fury to freshen our makeup. But she couldn't find her lipstick. She emptied her purse looking for it. She finally had to borrow mine, you know. Oh, how democratic. I said that. So now you own it? Now tell me, Miss Rustin, how do you figure the lipstick figures? Oh, it wasn't the lipstick. I happened to notice among the things from her purse a, a keychain, a chain with car keys on it, and an identification tag in the form of a little license plate. Oh, and the numbers were... 6969X. That's right. And since Ham Lacey had an alibi and those keys were in Miss Fury's bag, you figured it was her who'd been driving. It was she who'd been driving, yes. Isn't this revolting? Yeah, she, yes. She wanted to kill Nesta because he wouldn't turn loose of her so she could claw her way on up to the bitter top. And when she found him unconscious, it was easy. How literary. Uh, well, that's that, I guess. Thank you very much, Miss Rustin. I I hope your stay in our town has be... Was... Oh, what's the matter? Tony, baby, don't cry. Uh, I just thought of the most dreadful thing. I've had a wonderful time. I went to Cyrano's. I, I hit a movie star on the head, and I helped solve a murder. But I'll never, ever be able to say one single word about it to anybody in Ferndale, Nebraska. Darn it all. <laughs> It took a few minutes to put on a new touch of mascara and get the pink off her nose. But she was smiling again when we said goodnight to Matthews and stood on the steps at headquarters and looked at the glittering lights of Hollywood. There was still plenty of time for supper and even a dance or two, and she wanted to go. But suddenly, from somewhere, there was a smell of autumn in the air, of dry leaves on the ground and ripe red apples for the teacher. <laughs> she shook her head wistfully and spoke of an appointment she had bright and early next Monday morning. I took her to a hotel and said goodbye. All the way home, for some reason, I kept wondering, whatever happened to Skinny McDonald? The only kid in school who could shoot a better spitball than Marlowe. <laughs> Has it really been that long ago? Adventures of Philip Marlowe star Gerald Moore and are transcribed and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... There was a tapestry found under a tomb. They were all after it. The worried importer, the man with half a face, the Englishman in an L.A. slum and the lady wearing a green veil. But before it was over, none of them had it, and two of the four were dead. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That wraps it up for tonight's show at 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. We really enjoy good reviews, so when you have a chance, say something nice about a selection of shows, or maybe suggest some to us. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.